I'll be reading from Mark 8, verses 1 to 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dal Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Thank you. Uh, and this is Annalise Morsink, one of our young adults in our church. Thank you for reading the scripture today. This is a fascinating portion of scripture, and it's not to be confused when Jesus fed the 5,000. This is a different account, but it sounds similar, does it not? So what's going on in this passage is interesting. Mark is helping us to see that throughout, up until this point, Jesus has been communicating through his teaching and his miracles, traces of hope. Hope that he might be the one that had been prophesied in centuries gone by. Hope that he might be the one that would restore Israel to its former glory. And yet, in the, against the backdrop of this, last week and this week, we see he extends that hope to the Gentile regions of Judea and Galilee. He actually extends it to those outside the Jewish community. And so there are 4,000 people in this story that he feeds. And in this passage, despite all that he's done, I mean, Jesus has done a lot already, right? There's been a lot of miracles today. We've covered them, right? If you've been sleeping, you missed out. It's been great. You know, a lot of great things that Jesus has been doing. And despite all of that, he, he feeds the 4,000, gets in a boat, gets out of the boat, and who greets him? His critics. How many know there are always critics in life? You ever encounter a critic? If you haven't, you might be the one, right? That's, that's the way it goes. If you have never met a critic, you just might be that person in life. And he encounters the Pharisees, and the Pharisees want a sign from him. And he says, don't you understand? Because throughout this passage, it's not just the Pharisees that don't understand. Notice his own followers don't understand. And he's saying to them, hey, guys, you've seen it all. 
and yet you still don't get it? You don't understand who I am yet? This is, and Jesus is not perplexed, but he's, you know, he sighs. This is difficult. This, they're missing the boat, so to speak. But what's interesting in this passage is Jesus is showing us, and this is why it's so hard to understand who Jesus is, even for us in 2015. But we see in this passage what our true hunger is, what our true hunger is. You can see it in the opening passages. Jesus has already fed the 5,000 Jewish men and their families, and all of a sudden there's these 4,000 Gentiles. Now, they don't share the same tradition as Jesus. And you've got to ask yourself when you read this passage, why are they even there? They're hungry. They're in a desolate location. And it says that Jesus even was afraid that even if they tracked home, they might faint because of weakness on the way home. This is how long they've been without food. And they're there, and Jesus has compassion on them. He says, we need to feed them. And of course, the disciples, I, I always love these guys because he's just fed 5,000. And they're like, Jesus, where are we going to get all the food? And I'm sure Jesus is just like, oh my goodness, guys, honestly, the last time we did this, a few bread, a few fish, and I took care of it. Why are you all of a sudden perplexed as to how this is going to all go down, right? You ever been like that with God, though? Yeah, you ever realize how often we forget how he came through us in the past? And we, we encounter another difficult time and we go, oh, and God's like, oh, Jonathan, come on. How many times have I carried you? A lot. Have I not been faithful to do it? Yes. What's different now? And this is, the, this is where the disciples find themselves. This is the area code they're living in. But what perplexed me when I read the story is why these people are even following him. I mean, think about it. This is a 30-year-old Jewish rabbi. I mean, they're familiar with the traditions and the cultures of the Jews, but they don't follow them. They're not from the same faith group as you might, you might call it. And yet, I think the only way to summarize it would simply be this. They can't keep their eyes off him. It can't, they can't. In the end of chapter 7, it says this about this group of people. It says they were filled and overwhelmed with amazement. And you know what happened? Their hunger for Jesus became greater than their hunger for food. And they left their homes, their families, and their jobs. Wherever you go, I'm going. It's incredible what's going on in this text. When you think about the appetite they had for Christ... You know, I've misplaced my appetite many times for God. I remember when I was a young 20-year-old pastor, 20-something, I had a young family. I just had one kid. He was about yay tall at the time. And I remember going through a season where I was working for Jesus, doing a lot of work for Jesus, but I wasn't with him. And that was really hard. And someone must have seen it in my congregation that I was leading because I was weary and they had this old hunting cabin, and they said, listen, go, go, go get away for a week. Because we couldn't afford to drive across the street for milk, let alone go away for a week. But they provided a place for us, and I stuffed my family into our old station wagon, and, and I drove down the back roads of Nova Scotia, and Shelly and Caleb fell asleep, and I was all alone, and I'm driving, and I had worship music on, and I just began to weep. It was very uncharacteristic of me. And you know what it was? All of a sudden when I stopped, I just realized how much I was missing him. Because I had gone to him many times to get things. God, give me a word for Sunday. God, help me with this situation. God, help me. But I had never just gone to him for him. Not in a long time. 
And this is what's happening with these, these Gentile people. They didn't share the same tradition. Their God wasn't the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't the God of Moses who delivered them from slavery. This wasn't their tradition. In fact, Jesus, the community that Jesus represented, thought they were unclean. So, you know, what would make them want to follow Jesus to this place of desolation? Well, their hunger. It had awoken a spiritual hunger inside of them that had been dormant. And when they tasted that, when they saw that, they couldn't help. They didn't wake up one day and think, you know, I don't like our traditions. They didn't wake up one day and say, I want to shop around for faith traditions. No. They encountered Jesus and saw him in operation and saw the person, and they hungered for that. Whatever he's got, I want. Whatever's going on there, I want to be around this man. It's like when you get a taste for the real thing, right? How many, I love ice cream. Too much. Way too much. And maybe you share my sin of ice cream. I don't know. But I know this. Once you've had like Haagen-Dazs, Rocky Road Mountain ice cream, generic no-name vanilla ice cream just won't do. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm bad because like our speaker said two weeks ago, I don't know why I do this, but I buy it and I hide it. I hide it right in the back of the freezer, probably with two fears of mine. One is that someone might find it and eat it. The other is that my wife might find it and say, should you be eating this? And, you know, I, I laugh because I hide it in the back of Shelly and go, you're grown men. You can, you can buy ice cream if you want. But I still feel shame. I do. I feel shame about it. But once you've had the real thing, it's hard to go back to the generic, no-name, bland thing. And all of a sudden, they encounter Jesus. And it's like nothing they've ever encountered. And it, they begin to hunger for him. And there's a reason for that. Because they, like us in this room today, we were created by him and for him and in his image. So I'd like you to participate in the service right now. There's a verse that's going to come up on the screen. In the first service, they read it with me. But I'll be honest with you, it was subpar. I'm sorry, 9 a.m.ers, if you're left over, but you were here and you know. There was not a lot of vibrato with this. But I'm going to invite you to say it aloud with me. It's for Colossians chapter 1, and it describes who Jesus is. And this is it together. Let's read it together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So to be created by Christ means that he knows you better than you know yourself. Isn't that good news? I have trouble figuring me out. I know Shelley has trouble figuring me out. But he knows me. He knows me so well. We're not only created by him, but you are created for him. That means your life will never find meaning outside of him. And I'll show you in a minute how we try to do that. But not only were you created for him, you were designed to be in him. And Jesus said in John, he said, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He says he's the word, he's the meaning of life. In John chapter 6, he'd say this. How about this for a bold statement? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Friends, he is the one who satisfies your soul. 
truth. That is truth, friends. He is the one that satisfies your soul. And that's why the Bible, and you know, sometimes when you read the Bible, you can see many warnings in it, right? And you can either look at those warnings and say, oh, I mean, the Bible's always on me. But these are meant to help you. And these are warnings that if you try to fill your life outside of God's presence, God's glory, God's word, you're going to face spiritual malnutrition. That your life, your soul is going to starve. And yet there's a tendency in me and probably in you, but I'll pick on me, to try to feed myself on the things of this world. So you look to your job. You look to your children. You look to your spouse. You look to your money. You look to your education. And we say to them all the time, feed me. Be my ultimate soul satisfaction. And that's why parents put sometimes undue pressure on their children. Because a mom has made their life about their kids, and their kids can never measure up. Or a spouse has made their life about their mate in life, and they were never meant to be their all in all. They can't possibly live up to those expectations, so they're always disappointed. Or they look to their job and their career, and they get their promotion, and they get moving along only to find out that they can't find satisfaction in it. It's because you were not created by and for and in the image of your children your spouse, your job, or the money that you serve, right? I mean, that's what Jesus is saying here. It's like, it's like going, saying, I'm going to fill the ocean with sand, and you do it one bucket at a time. How's that going for you? This is why so many Christians are exhausted and frustrated. Because although they've centered their life around Jesus, they look to other things to fill them up. They look for other things to fill them. There's a great article written in the New York Times by a woman named Naomi Wolf, and it was called The Porn Myth. And she lectured all over the U.S. to universities about pornography and sexuality. And this is what she said, because I thought it was fascinating when I thought about what Jesus is showing us here. She said this, sex and pornography has become the wallpaper of our society. That's true, eh? You, don't, you can walk down St. Catherine Street. You can't walk down without knowing that's true, right? Sex and pornography have become the wallpaper of our society. Does all the sexual imagery in the air mean that sex has been liberated? Or is it the case that the relationship between the porn industry, compulsiveness, and sexual appetite has become like the relationship between processed food, supersized portions, and obesity? If your appetite is stimulated and fed by poor quality food, it takes more junk to fill you up. She goes on to say, what she's saying is this, despite the fact that there is a smorgasbord, I love that word, of sex out there, for you it is less satisfying than ever. She goes on to say, sex has lost its mystery. It is no longer satisfying us despite the fact that we're stuffing our souls with it. Friends, you're never meant to live on it. And yet, this is what happens. We, we, get, we have brokenness. Every one of us, the Bible says, has been broken in some way. And we want to medicate it. And some of us medicate it with sex because it makes us feel good in the moment. We medicate it with money and power and pursuits. Or some of us, we live for the, if only I get that promotion at work. If, then I'll truly be happy. If I finally find that spouse in life, then I'll be happy. If I finally get, that pro, uh, get into that program at school, then I'll be happy. And Jesus is saying in this text, among many texts, you're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself if you think that is going to fill your soul. Friends, your soul is too magnificent for that. Those things aren't evil. They're not even bad. 
But you are made for much more than that. And you'll always be frustrated. You'll always feel exhausted if you try to fill your soul, if you try to make it your soul satisfaction outside of Christ. So the question for me is, why do I keep trying to fill my soul with junk though? If I know Jesus is what I truly hunger for, why is it that I keep trying to fill my soul with junk food? What is it about that? Verse 15 and 16, 17, 18, and 19, Jesus kind of turns into the prophet here. He quotes from Jeremiah, the ancient old prophet, and he basically says this, and I'll paraphrase him. He says this, watch out, wake up, smell the coffee. I'm adding that one, of course. Yeah. Smell the coffee. I don't think Jeremiah ever said that. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. It's as if we get immersed in our culture and Jesus comes with the smelling salts to say, whoa, wake up. Be careful. Look out where this is headed. And I love it. In verse 19, he's reviewing all of the evidence of what he's done with his disciples and they still don't get it. He's talking about how many loaves of bread. You remember when I did the 5,000? You remember when I do the 4,000? And they miss it. They misunderstand. How can he not get it? How can the Pharisees not get it? How do we miss it? Well, I think this shows the human condition. The human condition is, the, their problem is our problem. Our real problem, friends, is not an evidence problem. Our real problem is not a proof problem. Our real problem is a faith problem. It's not that God hasn't done amazing things. It's just that I don't trust him. It's a faith issue. And he says that this yeast he's talking about has nothing to do with evidence, has everything to do with faith. You see, but you don't see. You hear, but you don't hear. You know, but you don't know. Now, pull it into modern day. We can even pull it right into our context here. It'd be like this. It'd be like... Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm using this as an illustration. It'd be like, okay, so Pastor Smith's been here six years. He's preached probably 300 messages here. He's tried to teach the Word of God, lift up Jesus. He's not perfect. He tells us all the time, and boy, is that ever true. <laughs> and, and yet, he's tried to lead us into a new future, and he's, he's tried to reach the community. Despite all that evidence, I don't believe him when he says he's being called to Toronto. I don't believe him. I don't think he's being honest. I don't be, I, I don't, I'm just saying this is how it would go. Because I, I love how Jesus, and if you're ever a leader, you fixate on what Jesus is doing here. Despite the evidence, people will believe what they want to believe. They will. And they'll talk about it. And they'll share it. Despite the evidence. The evidence, Jesus knew they didn't need more evidence. Didn't matter what he showed them, they're not going to believe him. Right? And sometimes, if you're ever a leader, be careful following down those rabbit trails. Because some people you will never satisfy. Thus saith Jesus. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Because the disciples come and they want a sign and he won't give it to them. He won't even give it to them. Because this is a faith issue. It's not an evidence issue. It's a faith issue. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? It means trusting Jesus with everything. It's surrendering everything to him. See, Jesus has Herod. Herod's a fascinating guy because Jesus, I find it amazing that Jesus kind of lumps together the disciples and Herod and Pharisees because he says to them that they have a, this yeast. And he says, be careful of this yeast. Wake up, smell the coffee. And we all know what yeast is, don't we? 
It's a fungus. And we usually put it in bread dough. And it causes it to slowly morph and change. And in the ancient context and in this context, it's a negative thing. And, and he's saying, wake up. Be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. It be, in modern terms, we'd say it's like cancer. A cancer that works in your body and you're not even aware of it. And it's morphing and changing you and killing you all at the same time. And he's saying, the Pharisees and Herod have stage four spiritual cancer. Be careful, boys. You're susceptible. And when I read that, I thought, whoa, why is he lumping in the disciples with Herod and the Pharisees? I mean, the Pharisees, he called a bro of vipers, right? He called Herod, what, a fox. <laughs> Go tell that fox, he said to the Pharisees, who were talking about Herod, and Herod, uh, going out, Herod was going to try to take his life. And he lumps the disciples in this. And I love this about Jesus. He doesn't put people in categories. He doesn't say, this one's a conservative, this is a liberal. This one's religious, this one's not religious. The, he, he, all he says, sees is people who are holy, and people who are unholy. Whether their generation, their culture, or anything. People are holy and people are unholy. And when he says, beware of the yeast, what the yeast is in this text is unbelief. It's, it's a lack of faith. Think about it in verse 11. The, disciples, the Pharisees come and say, give us a sign, and he refuses to give them a sign. He won't. You already have the evidence I'm not going to entertain this conversation any further. And he says to the guys, I've fed the 5,000. How many loaves? I've shown you all of this, and you still miss it. And what's the problem is, is he, there's a faith problem here. You see, but you don't see. You know, but you don't know. You hear, but you don't hear. <clears throat> what it means to have faith is you place your trust in him. So Herod is this man who represents power in this day. And everything that Jesus has done has shown that he's the true king. I love that Jesus called him fox, right? You know what a fox means? Yeah, a fox, we always say sly as a fox. That's not at all what Jesus meant, though. In the ancient culture, the fox was always the antithesis of the lion. So get this. The lion is the one who made the kill, ate everything that it wanted, and then after it left, the fox went and got the leftovers and pretended like it made the kill. Herod would have felt the sting of this. What, Herod, what Jesus was saying to he, uh, listen, sometimes you get a flannel graph version of Jesus that he was just a mama's boy, and he is not. This man was courageous and strong. And the Pharisees come and warn him, Herod's going to try to kill you. And he said, go tell that fox. Go tell that wannabe king. Go tell that puppet, that poser. And it's incredible. Uh, Jesus' strength, I hope you know who you follow, was courageous and bold and strong and fearless. And he says, go tell that. Because this man would be, call himself a king, and Jesus is the true king. The religious leaders controlled the temple, and they, they held the people hostage to it. And yet, Jesus came to liberate them, not from the, the beliefs of the scripture, not from the laws, but, but to liberate them from the, the control of those leaders just in that, in that environment. And, wh and what they, the, the loops that they made them jump through to find God. See, the problem is, is Jesus is a threat. Because if they were to place their faith in Jesus, they lose their jobs. And they had built a lot of comfort and status in their jobs. And this is the same problem that I have and you have. We live in a culture that is all about comfort and status. And that's why when Jesus asks something of us, 
we don't pick the phone up because we're not prepared to sacrifice that. It's a very difficult, precarious place we find ourselves in. Friends, the more we look at him, though, and this is the hard part, the more I look at Jesus and say no, the harder my heart becomes. We know, but we don't know. We see, but we don't see. We hear, but we don't hear. In World War II, you know I love history, and when the Allies were liberating Europe, they came across the first concentration camp, and a hardened American general, his name was George Patton, when he came across that uh, concentration camp, he lost his lunch. It was that bad. And he invited everyone from the town. He brought the mayor and his wife from the town that was right beside it and had made them look at the camp. And the next day, he brought every able-bodied person from the town to bury the bodies in that camp because he knew they knew. There's no way they couldn't know what was going on there. The soldiers had all their R&R &R in the town. They womanized, they got drunk, they bragged in that town. He knew they knew. And after the first day, they buried 80% of the bodies, 20% left to go, and they went in the morning to find the mayor and his wife, but they had hung themselves. And they left this note. We didn't know, but we knew. It's amazing how much we can deceive ourselves. And that's why you can listen to a challenge like Jesus. And I, I realize there's two different types of people. Some people feel challenged and they feel defeated. Other people feel challenged and they feel inspired. I want to say that Jesus is always, when he's challenging you, it's to inspire you, not to, to crush you, not to say, oh, I give up. It's to inspire you to reach for more. And he says, wake up, smell the coffee. You don't have an evidence problem, you have a faith problem. So it, it, it matters if you're a seeker here. Maybe you're just trying to figure out who God is. And you need evidence. And you need to hear more sermons. And you need to ask questions. And you need to probe some of those doubts. And that's wonderful. We're glad you're here. Keep doing that. Ask the hard questions. Do the work of finding out who Jesus is. But just consider for a moment if you're a seeker here. Just for, consider for a moment what Jesus is even saying in the text today. Could it be that you're, you don't have an evidence problem? Could it be that you're just postponing? Because Jesus is asking stuff of you. And you don't want to commit? Because you don't want to give up things? You don't want to change things? Maybe it's not even an evidence issue. Maybe it is a faith issue. And you keep suspending that decision because of the commitment that it requires. Just be honest with yourself. Wake up. See what that is. It might be an evidence issue and you need to probe more. But it might not be that. It might be a faith issue for you. It's true of Christians, isn't it? It gets all quiet in here. I love you guys. I love you. It's true of Christians. One of the operating principles of the Christian faith is that it's more blessed to... Oh, someone knows it. Awesome. It's more blessed to give than to... Receive. That's one of the primary operating principles of the Christian faith. Why? Because the Father represents this. He said, I love the world so much that I gave my only Son. Everything about God is giving. And so he asks us to push back against that thing that wants to be selfish all the time. And so it starts with, hey, uh, one of the biblical principles, certainly in the Old Testament, it's exceeded in the New Testament, is to start by giving 10% of your income. Trust me. Oh, right away it's going to get even quieter. <laughs> Listen, friends, I, I hope you know this. I'm leaving. It's not because I need your money or want your money. God doesn't need your money. 
He doesn't want anything from you. He wants something for you, though. He wants something for you. And when you practice that generosity and giving, it kills that thing inside of you that consumes everything you get. Now, there can be some of us, because that's why I say God loves a what giver? Cheerful giver. If you're not cheerful and you're giving, don't give. Because I don't want, I've been around guilt. I, you know, they used to laugh about, they called it the church that guilt built. You know, church and religion knows how to make people guilty. Parents sometimes parent through guilt. You know, you can get a kid to do something quickly by guilting them, can't you? And then they don't visit you when you're older and you're shocked. <laughs> I said, I have talked to many uh, people who don't call their parents and I'll say, listen, honor your mother and father. And so every time I call them, they make me feel guilty. And I just wish they understood that that was just pushing them away from relationship. God doesn't want this kind of guilt compliance. That's not his issue here. It's a kingdom principle. And it's a trust principle. Do you trust me with your money? I trust you, God, but not with that. It's a faith issue. It's not an evidence issue. Now, you might be in a tight spot. And you might need to budget, and you might need to get things in order, and all of that. That's great. But just consider for a moment that maybe you don't want to give because it means sacrifice. It means change. Maybe, just maybe, that might be it. That's what Jesus is challenging us with here. Another operating principle is that a Christian only flourishes in community. Now, you might be here, and you might be on the fringe of community and say, listen, I'm too busy. I'm too busy, I'm just here for school, I'm here for two or three years, and that's it, and I, I'm busy. And that could be very true. Your schedule could be packed, and you have so much on it. But just consider for a moment, as Jesus says, wake up, smell the coffee. Could it be that's your excuse? And maybe you don't want to be in community because it costs you? You've got to be vulnerable. All of a sudden, when someone you know has a hard time, you have to be there for them. It requires something of you. Could it be? It's easier to stand on the fringe, kind of exit the facility, get, come and eat what you want, leave for the week, come back and eat what you want, leave for the week. Don't need to volunteer, don't need to participate. Clean, clear, low maintenance. But Jesus says you only flourish when you're in Christian community. I'm not saying that's you, friend. I'm saying you should wake up, smell the coffee. Is that you? Is that you? Is that what's going on here? Because week after week, you know, what happens is, we, he says, watch out, because days become weeks, weeks become months, months become years. So, you know, are you, if you're not involved and you said, listen, I've been waiting to get involved, and you've been saying that for three years, are you any closer? Or, or you, you've never given, and this church doesn't need your money, it's not about that, but you've never given sacrificially of your money. And you keep saying, I will, though. You've said that for years. You any closer to doing that? See, maybe you need to wake up, smell the coffee. What's really going on here? What's really happening here? Just consider for a moment that this might not be an evidence issue. It might be a faith issue. Here's the thing with faith. And faith is tough, is it not? Boy, if you didn't say yes. It's like this chair. If I said, do you have faith that you sit on this chair, it's going to hold you. You might say, listen, well, I saw you sit on it, and you clearly weigh more than me, so it's going to hold me up. Or you read the manufacturer specs, and you say, yes, this will hold me up. But you really don't know until what? Until you give way to gravity, and you have to trust it. It's like finding your one and only spouse in life. 
You really don't know. I mean, you, I, I hope you've done due diligence. But it's when you get married. There's a real, that's, that's the moment where you really know. You really know. Now, if you met someone today during the meet and bump, and you're, gonna, you're thinking of popping the question, don't do it. It's way too early in the process here. But assur- here's the deal with this. Assurance always follows faith. I have faith this will hold me. When I sit, I now have the assurance it does. I don't have assurance beforehand. So many Christians live insecure lives with no assurance. It's because they never walk a walk of faith. Where's the trust where you have to trust God and you sit finally? Whether it's you're a seeker and you don't know whether you want to put your faith and trust in God, sit in the chair. See that he doesn't hold you up, friend. Whether it's giving you of your money and you, you just don't trust God can come through, try it. Try it. Actually, in the Bible, it even says this, test me in it. See that I do not provide for you. Incredible. I mean, God gives you insurances. It's incredible. But faith, assurance always follows faith. And Jesus says, listen, listen, guys, I made you. I know you. Fall back into my arms and trust me. And his disciples, they miss it. The, the, the Pharisees miss it. And he says, wake up. Do you not understand? You know, how do you trust him more, though? And we'll, we'll conclude with this. And uh, here's how you trust him more. You got to know his heart. You really do. Look at the evidence of him in your life. But at some point, you have to acknowledge and trust his heart toward you. You know, when I read this passage, the thing that struck me most in it was how alone Jesus was. So alone, it's incredible. His friends do not understand him and do not know him. The men who were maintaining and honoring the traditions and the rituals of the temple, they were his enemies. And he left this home in heaven where he had perfect community and love. I mean, how shocking that would be or how troubling that would be. But I love the heart of Jesus because in the, against the backdrop of loneliness, he came to abolish our loneliness. That same author, Naomi Wolf, when she toured all of those campuses across the U.S., she would ask all of the men and women, the young men and women, she'd say this, when I ask about loneliness, a deep, sad silence descends on the audiences of young men and women because they know that they are lonely together. Even when they're conjoined, what they don't know, she says, is how do I get out of it? Jesus says, I've come. And I've not stayed on the fringe. I've gone all the way in. I've experienced loneliness that you'll never understand so I can lead you all the way out. He says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I am your soulmate. It's incredible. Incredible. And he has compassion on us, it says in verse 2. And compassion in the Greek meant these internal vital organs, your heart, your kidneys, your lungs. And it was to denote that their emotional involvement at the deepest levels. He feels compassion on people. And I love this, friends. I hope you don't miss this. He loves those Gentiles. But he loves those Pharisees. He sighs deeply because he loves them. I love that about him. 
I love the patience he demonstrates and the grace he demonstrates. Because sometimes I read these disciples and I just think, you guys are dimwits. Only to look in the mirror and say, I'm one of you. And if you can be patient with them, Jesus, I love that you're patient with me. Don't you love that? If you can extend them grace, oh, how much more will you extend me grace? They knew, but they didn't know. Wake up. Smell the coffee. Watch out. Open your eyes. If you feed on him, you won't need to feed yourself on the junk of this world. You won't need to feed yourself or turn to people or things and say, feed me for significance because you will already have it. If you feed on Jesus, you'll become compassionate like he is. So, you know, I thought it was appropriate that we started this teaching time by praying and thanking God for some things. I think it'd be appropriate if we took a moment and we prayed too. And I think it'd be appropriate that maybe we pray about whether it's a faith issue or an evidence issue. So, you know, friends, I'm going to invite you to just, uh, we're closing up just in a second here, but whenever you bow your heads just in this moment of reflection. I wonder how many here would say, uh, Pastor Smith, I, I have a, it's a faith problem. I've been masquerading it as a proof problem or an evidence problem. I have many excuses for why I don't orientate my life around you. But to be honest, God, before you, I have a faith problem. Uh, if that's you, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand uh, because this is an indication. Yeah, there's a lot of us. Yeah. Well, you're in good company because I raised my hand with you too. I think every one of us have areas in our life where we choose not to trust him, where we choose to pretend like we know better than him, where we choose to think that his ways aren't higher than ours and his thoughts are not higher than ours. Oh, you know, when you raise your hand, what that is, is humility. God opposes the proud and he accepts the humble. So friends, uh, in, with that kind of heart and mind, let's pray. God, we don't come to you from a position of strength this morning. We come to you from a position of weakness, knowing that in our weakness, your strength is shown. We don't come to you as people who have all the answers. We come to you like the disciples do. We're missing pieces. And sometimes, God, we know who you are, and sometimes we know, but we don't know. Sometimes, God, we see you, and sometimes we see you, but we really don't see you, God. God, we have moments like this where we hear you, and we leave here, and we don't hear you. And so, Lord, you understand our humanity, and that's why you taught us to pray daily to forgive us of our trespasses. That's why you taught us to pray daily for our provision, because you knew if we didn't have daily reminders, we have a tendency to forget what's most vital. So God, we fix our eyes on you today, the author and finisher of our faith. And we acknowledge you are our soulmate. We were made for you, in you, for you, and by you. And God, we pray that our appetite for the junk food that the society feeds us, Lord, that you would give us a taste of living water of bread of life, God, or that our 
heart, once we tasted the real thing, God, the other stuff would truly feel like junk food. God, we are so imperfect and you are so perfect. And we are so thankful, God, that you call imperfect people to yourself. We're so thankful, God, that you don't call people who have it all together. You call us. We're so thankful, God, that you don't call people who had this, it seems like from the outside, this easy life. You just call normal people like us in this room. We are flawed. We're sinful. We disappoint. We disappoint ourselves often. We make excuses. We're blind. Sometimes we're deaf. But God, you call us, and when you do, you restore us and transform us into new creatures in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, for your recreative ability in our lives. And God, help us to live like we've been made new creatures in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you, friends. Next week, Pastor Joe is going to continue our teaching on uh, Mark, and we're going to be looking at uh, the, the man who is blind. And then the following week, we'll have a kind of concluding service with everyone here. We love you, church. And let's keep uh, reimagining, keep moving forward. As you leave this place, I hope this lingers in your mind all week. I hope you say it often to yourself. Wake up, Jonathan. Smell the coffee, whatever your name is. Watch out. Open your eyes. Don't get lulled to sleep by this culture. Live for the one. Amen? Bless you. Bless you.